0: Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and special VIP co-hosts. Join in on a great conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the latest tricks and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso and
1: his co host Welcome to the Spotlight. I'm your host, Tony Dierso. Today's Spotlight interview is with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. And with a living, happy, inside out mantra, Maura Sweeney talks about influence, leadership, and identity through her podcasts, books, e course, HuffPost blog, and as an international speaker. I would really check that out for everyone that wants an international speaker. She is really good. Actually, strike that. She's dynamic as a speaker. Well, this ambassador of happiness joins us today to put the spotlight on our latest guest. Hello, Mora.
2: Hi, Tony. And thank you for having me on as your special guest host so I get a chance to learn more firsthand from our special guest
1: today. Well, very, very cool. And once again, thank you for the honor of having you on our show on the spotlight. And for our audience, you are listening to The Spotlight, where we focus on highlighting Hollywood stars, sports greats, and game changers. If you're a fit, we want your interview on The Spotlight. We broadcast every Friday at 1 p.m., so please set your calendar to hear from the world's elite. Also, you can catch every episode of The Spotlight on my mobile app. Just go to tonydurso.com mobile from your smart device or cell phone. And once it loads, past episodes of The Spotlight will automatically appear in column one. And column two is my other weekly show highlighting elite entrepreneurs called Revenue Chat. Okay, enough of that. Today, we set the stage for The Spotlight to chat with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. And a little bit of an intro on him right before I bring him on. To start with, he's, right now he's a native of Los Angeles, but he's lived in Israel, and he traveled extensively through the Middle East, Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. Get this, when he was 21, while attending school in Jerusalem, he was sent on a mission into the Soviet Union. That was when we had the very Cold War back then. Well, he was there, and his mission was to smuggle out a dissident's manuscript on microfilm. That first trip was a success. However, on his second trip to the Soviet Union, he was arrested in the Ukraine and interrogated by the Soviets for two days, and again for two days in Moscow before being released. He's the author of four novels and the world premiere of the movie, The Damascus Cover, starring Jonathan Rhys Meyers and Sir John Hurt, actually now I believe the late Sir John Hurt, debuts at the boston film festival september 23 all right welcome to the spotlight howard
3: thank you so much for having me
1: howard it's our honor to have you on with us and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the spotlight and sharing this incredible excellent and exciting news about your book being turned into a movie this is really cool
3: it's fortunate. It's, uh, there's a
1: lot of luck involved <laughs> along the way. Oh, I, I, I understand. I'm, we're going to jump into it. But first things first, Howard, would you please tell us how it all started for you?
3: Uh, you mean the novel or the film?
1: Let's go, or into, to, uh, let's go into the novel and how, you know, I'm very curious at how you're 21 years old. You're in school in Jerusalem. And you get sent on a mission. Perhaps maybe start from there just kind of fill us, fill us in a little bit.
3: I had a friend from high school here in Los Angeles, Hamilton High School, who met a guy in Jerusalem. It always seems to start with a guy and a girl. They're quickly living <laughs> together. And she's quickly recruiting her friends to go into the Soviet Union. So there was a group of us, about a dozen We met once a week for a year, and then they chose the person they thought the most competent or the most something. They didn't really tell me, and they said, you're it, and you're going to bring the microfilm out. In those days, people were just coming out of the Soviet Union, and under the communists, their policy was anything not yet published was property of the state. So if people were leaving, they would be strip shirts, all their luggage, everything searched for all manuscripts, artwork, and these people couldn't get their unpublished work out. So I went in to bring out a roll of microfilm the first time.
1: This is right out of a spy thriller, James Bond type. This is cool. Please go on.
3: Well, the second time I did, I succeeded in that without too much trouble. And the second time they had me transfer an actual physical manuscript, pages, from a dissident. He gave it to me in a bathroom, very near the Dutch embassy. And I was able to enter the Dutch embassy with my U.S. passport, telling them that, my, that I was a friend of the ambassador's daughter. And he came in, and we sat and wrote notes to each other the entire time we were talking about this made-up relationship or friendship I had with his daughter. And at the end of the conversation, he'd taken the manuscript before this, he wrote one last note and said, Be careful, this is not James Bond. And then he burned all the notes in an ashtray.
1: (laughs) Wow, that is amazing. And so now you, you got, this is your second time, so you actually got caught, but perhaps... Before I ask about that, or either or, I would love to know a little snippet of what the book is about because we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about it. So I'll give you the cue and take it any way you want. Howard?
3: Um, What I did is I took this experience that I have as being a 20-something sort of burnt-out person. I was interrogated for four days, and I transmuted it into writing about an Israeli spy who was in his fifties at that time fifties seemed very old to me (laughs) and i wrote about a burnt out spy on a mission in damascus in syria i'd been to damascus briefly and two-thirds i was two-thirds of the way through writing the book suddenly a big twist occurred to me i didn't have it planned out and it worked really perfectly and virtually everyone tells me they don't see the twist coming, not in the book and not in the film. It's the same twist.
1: Wow, very cool, very cool. So much I want to ask you about this, but I feel Mora breathing proverbially down my shoulder. So let me, ask, let me turn it over to Mora to ask a couple questions on this. Please go ahead. Well-
2: <laughs> oh, thanks, Tony. And you know, I'm engaged in this. The first thought I'm hearing about all of this, Howard, is what was your frame of mind? What was your state of being when suddenly you, the real Howard, the real 21-year-old or whatever, who's over there experiencing this in real life? What's going on in your head? Is it terror? What is it? And how did that play um, into creating that next, your story?
3: Uh I was in the city called Kharkov, it's now called Kharkiv in the Ukraine, and I was meeting with dissidents, and it all happened very quickly. They walked me back to the trolley, they were very polite, and we turned a corner and a whole group of KGB people jumped out, threw me against a wall, and punched the Russian guy next to me in the stomach. So I had several thoughts all at once, which was, I'm being treated better because I'm not a Soviet citizen. So that gave me a little encouragement. I also had no incriminating documents on me. I wasn't caught. There was no microfilm. I didn't have anything in my hotel room. I'd finished all the things that I had come to do. And I think really what happened was I got the feeling from the Moscow KGB, who interrogated me two days later, that they were sort of irritated with the yokels in the provinces who didn't know how to uh, tail a foreign tourist, without arresting him. (laughs) The other part... Go ahead. Maybe the way to answer it another way, too, is I was on a 14-day tour. Even if you're by yourself, you're on a tour during Soviet times, which means you have a visa for exactly 14 days. So I was arrested on the 10th day of a 14-day trip, and I think I felt I'm okay for four days. If they expel me, because nobody will be missing me in the West. You know, there are no cell phones. Nobody knew I was arrested. And if they don't hold me past my expected flight, when suddenly it would have been a big international incident had I not shown up, I probably am okay. But I think I was more nervous than I realized, because I remember very clearly, despite all the years, I had a yellow weave short sleeve shirt on, and I was being interrogated in the KGB, excuse me, in the hotel manager's office. They were you know, more polite. And I was lighting matches during a break. I was nervous. And I dropped a match on my shirt and burnt a hole right through the shirt. So I thought I was a little more nervous than I was overtly feeling.
2: That's a lot for any 21-year-old, especially, you know, growing up during that whole era, the Cold War. I mean, we would only hear the worst stories about the Soviet Union. But I'm sure that that really added a lot of nuance and reality to the story you were writing. Tony, back to you. I'm sure you've got several more questions.
1: I have 2,365 more questions to cram (laughs) into this interview. (laughs) I want to bring f- things fast forward to present time. This book, this story happened 40 years ago. And though the the novel is changed a little bit and perhaps people and some events, I'd like to know what made the producers take this 40-year-old story, if I can call it that way, into a film now. Is there some relevancy? Like, if you could just answer, like, why now and and or is it, has it been changed to fit perhaps more modern times?
3: It's been changed somewhat, uh, not hugely. The original novel was set in 1977, and the film is actually set in 1989. The reason being, I have both in the book and also in the film, uh, the f- former Nazis in Damascus who helped train the Syrian army and Syrian intelligence services, and we got the great German actor, Jürgen Prochnow, who's known most for that old film Das Boot, but also was in the Da Vinci Code, to play one of the Nazis in Damascus, so they couldn't move it up all the way to current time, because the Nazis would have been too old, and they also didn't want to have to deal with the Civil War, and that was one of the things that the book, where the book is somewhat of an artifact. And I spent a lot of time in great description of what Damascus was like before the Civil War. So suddenly, unexpectedly, the novel will give you a really good view of what Damascus is like. Damascus is actually the oldest continuously inhabited city on the planet. It's an oasis in the desert. People don't think of it that way. Rivers come up from Lebanon and... Fruit trees surround the city. Now, more to your question, I think filming it now, there are probably two reasons. One, the book and my other writings all have a feel, a sense, an urgency of reconciliation. That the various sides, whether they be Israel and the Arabs, the United States and Iran, uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis, we're going nowhere if we don't find a way to move together. So I think that theme stays current. And then I think a good story just sort of works. You know, if the bones of a story work, you know, as I say, have a twist, have good characters, or have a romance in it that's compelling, it tends to be, you know, you can read an old novel that feels like it's current.
1: This is The Spotlight with Tony DiRso and Maura Sweeney joining me as co-host. Just ahead, we continue the chat with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other. And all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map, beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, long-term objective, and master plan, including strategic and tactical planning. Get the Vision Map, beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com vision. V-I-S-I-O-N. The Dream Business Community wants to help you with your career and business. Are you ready for accelerated success? Check it out. The Dream Business Community at TonyDurso.com community. Are you the right fit? We're looking for a few good sponsors that are the right fit for our world-class brand, The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Does your brand fit in with an audience that likes our interviews with Hollywood stars, sports greats, game changers? If so, let's see how we can promote your brand to the best audience to help you grow. Email me at Tony at tony d-u-r-s-o dot com and let's see how we can help. That's Tony at Tony
0: D-U-R-S-O.com. You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and a special VIP co-host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at Tony D-U-R-S-O.com. Now, back to The
1: Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight with the ambassador of happiness, Maura Sweeney, as co-host. Today's show is with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. 40 years ago, Howard Kaplan's best-selling thriller, the Damascus cover, debuted to rave reviews. This year, on September 23, it premiered at the Boston Film Festival as a major motion picture with an all-star cast including Jonathan Rees Myers from The Two Doors and Bennett Like Beckham, Olivia Thirlby from Just Before I Go and Between Us, and in one of his last performances, The Late Great Sir John Hurt from The Elephant Man and Television's I, Claudius. All right, and now back to the chat with Howard. Now, if you could tell us, how did this film actually come about? I'm very interested in that because I believe in reading through your bio and information on your site, this film was optioned, I believe, about 10 years or so ago. And it's just, so if you could just kind of take us through that, what what made it actually finally happen?
3: It's a real story of perseverance. And I would say the perseverance is more the director's, although partially mine, I always was not under desire to pressure them financially or ask for more money or ask for bigger amounts of money. I always had my eye on the end zone, which was getting the film made. So the director had been looking to do a Middle East film, and just by sometimes you have luck in your life, although often you have the other thing. in this case... He went to a friend of his and just mentioned to her that he wanted to do a Middle East film. And she happened to be a friend of mine and she owned the book and she just went to her shelf, pulled it down. They said, read this. And he read it. And then she called and said, he wants to meet you. And we met for coffee and we did an agreement right away. And the 10 years were really about raising finances. You know, he originally had this idea that he could raise money in Israel It turned out to be, you know, shoot it in Israel. It turned out to all be wrong. In the end, he raised money in Great Britain, which is why we have a lot of European Union actors. Uh, Naveed Negabon, who played, who's Persian, he played uh, Abu Nazir in Homeland, who was, you know, the main antagonist in the early years. He's also in the film. Uh, And we shot in Morocco. And Morocco has a huge infrastructure. Most of the Hollywood films set in the Middle East are actually shot in Morocco. He just stuck with it. You know, he met me every year. I didn't speak to him at all, other than once a year. I would get an email and say, I'm still trying. Now we're trying to shoot in Malta. That was another direction. We have some money from the Maltese film industry. I think part of Game of Thrones is shot in Malta. You know, they have also great locales. That didn't work out, and he would come in every year and say, I want to re-option the story, and I didn't shop it elsewhere. I didn't tell anybody. We met for coffee at the St. Pete's Coffee. I signed the extension for a year, and then finally he called me and said, you know, it's finally set up. We have the money, and we have the actors. I was pretty shocked, actually.
1: I love that story, and I hope that I have a fiction book out which is along the lines of Middle Earth. And it happens, you could say, much later than the Lord of the Rings time period. And it would be cool to see that into a movie. And I hope I don't have to wait so many years.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're now in a world of streaming where things go to Netflix and exactly. Amazon, and which means there's more content that gets made. So it's a good thing for all of us.
1: Very cool. Very both cool. writers and viewers. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool.
2: All right. There are a couple of things. I'm um, First of all, imagining a 21-year-old who has a real-life experience would have had no idea 40 years later he'd have this book. I think it, it's been translated into seven languages. Is that right? Yes, and correct. now turning into this international film. I had read something about you and you talked about the stories. You said this is not your background academically, but you would read stories twice and you would kind of go and, and sort of by observing them, figure out how to write a story. And one of the things that got me was this. You said complexity is a drawback. Tell us and the listeners today what it is about your ability to tell a tale that you think has made this one not only so successful as a book, but now stepping into movie. What is it about this whole idea of keeping things simple that uh, you feel I is think, important?
3: Yes, I think that if I watch them, like I can watch Game of Thrones and accept the complexity, but I can't really follow the storyline. My son apparently can. He's 24. It's just too complex. There, we're fortunate that everything is so interesting and so gorgeous because they spend so much money on it that they can do things that way. Uh, My stories are more direct with twists. In other words, you can see going from point A to point B to point C to point D, and then I go suddenly to point Z and start over again. In terms of the, the initial thing you said, um, what I used to do when I wanted to write, because uh, I didn't take any writing classes, I read a novel first just to know what would happen, so I wouldn't be bogged down. Then I would read it again slowly to see how the author constructed the story. And Hemingway was a good example of sort of a lack of complexity, you know, both in his and structure And in his stories, they just went and they went fast. And that was the second part. So if they weren't going to be complex, I wanted them to be fast moving. So that's what I did.
2: Very neat. And you know, I was reading some of the reviews on your book, and they said a lot of people really thought that you managed to present history in a way that everybody could understand. And how does that make you feel as it's almost like you're an author, but you're a historian, you're a commentator. The fact that common people or let's say everyday people could pick up on some of these things that to most Americans would seem highly complex. How does that all make you feel?
3: It's one of my favorite things to do is to present history through the narrative, you know, where a character is in a place or he's driving through an area and he can know the history of that area. So I can present it that way. And I feel that's just something I don't even do it consciously. I just like to do it. And God bless the Internet. Now I can find things really quickly. You know, I'm in a place and I know, I remember there was an event here or a historical event and I don't remember the details exactly. Boy, at a couple clicks, I'm right there. And then it's right in the novel and I sound even smarter than I am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Howard, you're 21 years old. You're arrested by the KGB in the Soviet Union. And you talked earlier about it was rather terrifying. You were very nervous. And I'm impressed. Based on what we've heard and learned about the Soviet Union back then, that I'm impressed that they let you go. I'm impressed that they adhere to the 14-day visa. That just like blows my mind. But there's no. Well, they're, actually,
3: no, they're actually, go, go ahead.
1: I was just wondering if about the interrogation itself, as to how physical or mental or brutal or even torture. I'm, there was just seems to be a lack of it. So I would love you to tell us more about it.
3: Okay, so two things. First, as to the 14 days, we had a plan, the people who briefed me, that if I got caught, they would be certain to be very interested in who set me, more so than in who I was. So we had concocted a story that I was approached in a travel agency in London with someone who asked me to do a few things. And I told the KGB that I didn't, that I didn't know how to contact him. I didn't have a phone number, but he would be meeting my scheduled flight to Heathrow Airport in London. So the goal was to try to get them to expel me on my scheduled flight with the hope that they would then follow me or send someone to the airport in London. And I love, I told the story to my son when he was about eight or nine. He's now 24. I'm coming to the, to the film premiere in Boston. Uh, they, so they indeed did expel me on that flight. And I went outside, I went, pretended like I was looking for this guy and I couldn't find him. I went to a phone and I actually made a call to a friend. And I said, I mean, you know, I have a bad cold. So we had a meeting point where they would meet me in a cab, big black British London cab on a certain street. So, I hailed this cab, and it was driven by friends of mine, and I didn't know, I couldn't see it myself, but it turned out there were two people following me on the sidewalk. They were stuck, so they hailed the next cab. So that's what (laughs) I told my son this when he was eight, and I said, what do you think they said to the driver? He said, follow that cab. (laughs) And indeed, that's what happened. But they were unaware that that cab was driven by other friends. They specifically had expected that. And two cars drove up on both sides of that cab and jumped in at a red light. So they sandwiched the Russians in the back seat. I don't know whether they were on my plane or they were in London and sent to meet me. And they were left uh, in Epping Forest without their clothing, tied to trees. I don't think they were questioned, but so that that's what sort of happened to them. So it's fortunate. But in terms of the interrogation itself, actually, this is very apropos. I had two, they taught me certain things such as if you have to describe someone, describe someone, you know, so I described my father as the guy who sent me and maybe in a way he did. Uh, Because they said, if you're tired a few days later, and you have to repeat that interrogation, repeat repeat that description, you'll be able to easily recall. So I had the following problem. I had two really close friends, one named Larry Simon and the other named Steve Schiffer. So I crossed their names for the name of the person who sent me. However, I was less smart than I thought. The following morning... I couldn't remember if I said Larry Schiffer or Steve Simon. (laughs) And I was really worried that I was going to be in deep trouble. And the first thing the interrogator says to me in the morning is, so tell me about this guy, Simon. (laughs) And the funny story of my life is I haven't seen Larry Simon in about 25 years. And he lives in Boston and he's picking me up later this week. Uh, when I've landed Boston to go to the film premiere.
1: That's incredible. I love it. Right out of a Hollywood spy movie. I mean, absolutely. Just picture perfect there. This is the Spotlight with Tony Dierso and Morris Sweeney as co-host. Just ahead, we're going to find out more from the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. But first, it's time for us to take a short break see you back here in just a moment. Are you the right fit? We're looking for a few good sponsors that are the right fit for our world-class brand, The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Does your brand fit in with an audience that likes our interviews with Hollywood stars, sports greats, game changers? If so, let's see how we can promote your brand to the best audience to help you grow. Email me at tony at tony d-u-r-s-o dot com and let's see how we can help. That's Tony at TonyDURSO.com. The dream business community wants to help you with your career and business. Are you ready for accelerated success? Check it out. The Dream Business Community at slash community Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other and all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com slash vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, Long-term objective and master plan, including strategic and tactical planning. Get the vision map. Beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com vision. V-I-S-I-O-N.
0: You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and a special VIP co-host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to tony at tonydurso.com. Now,
1: back to the Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight with the Ambassador of Happiness, Maura Sweeney, as co-host. Today's show is with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. After 10 years of annually optioning the movie rights with director Daniel Burke, The film is finally seeing the light of day. His work has never been timelier. Howard says, My books are generally about reconciliation between Israelis and Arabs slash Palestinians, and this film is very much a hard-hitting representation of the excesses of both sides. All right, back to the chat with Howard. Now that, that harrowing event, I'd be... I'd be traumatized, but you said, hey, you just, you, that was your impetus to becoming a writer. How did that happen?
3: Uh, I think for a while, it was all I could talk about. I tried to impress girls with it, you know, to try to get <laughs> Also, not very successful, it turned out. I remember one woman saying, one girl saying to me, and you know, I was in my early 20s, she goes, I can't talk in a blue streak like you do. And that was the end of that. Uh, but then I went the opposite way, and I didn't talk about it forever until this film sort of arose. Uh, And I just wrote, you know, I just took that experience quietly inside myself and I wrote novels. I have a very good friend who I've known for over 12 years who didn't know until this recent round of publicity that I'd ever been to Russia because I just I went the opposite way. I figured it didn't work telling people all the time. Maybe I did not tell anyone ever. And I went into that direction. And, you know, we have to leave our youthful exploits behind And I'm trying to write, you know, with, you know, a greater sense of maturity, although I seem to have had a good sense in my 20s about what was important.
1: Very cool. That's just astounding. Thank you so much for sharing all that.
2: You know, I want to just go back to one word you used at the beginning of this interview, and you were referring to what's going on in the Middle East. It's like the age-old problem. And you use this word reconciliation. Am I right, Howard?
3: Yes, I absolutely do. And in the film, I didn't really let you ask your question. But well, I wa- you know a- what?
2: I wanted you to talk about that, because when I hear things like reconciliation, understanding how many people groups don't get along and how old this is, that is very exciting to me. And it feels very uplifting. Would you just expand upon why you said yeah, it?
3: There's, there's a great scene near the end of the film, which is sort of expanded from the novel. John Hurt has. Uh, these these lines, he's sitting and talking to a Syrian general over the phone. And they've had a long association together, uh, trying to cooperate when they could for the greater good of everybody, where sometimes the spy agencies and the military could cooperate in the way the politicians wouldn't. And John Hurt says to this... Uh, and John Hurt has this just marvelous voice. He says to the head of the Syrian you know, army, he says, can you believe we're still doing this? We're still at war with each other after all this time. And that's sort of near how the film ends. You know, with the idea that maybe we should stop doing this, this is what they were saying to each other. And that's just what I've always felt. I think that it's very easy to get up on a podium or a soapbox and talk about how awful the other side is, whatever side they are. And often they are awful. And often you're awful too. And the idea is to acknowledge that and say, hey, you know, this is how I behave, this is how you behave. Maybe we want to be in a better place. So that's what I do.
2: All right. I think that's very exciting. And I I wonder having as that as like a closing remark how much that's going to strike a familiar chord in terms of a lot of people who would love to get past that and work more toward reconciliation wherever they may be in life. Uh, If I could change direction. Well, yeah, I know that. But people could relate to that, right? Ongoing struggles. But the Middle East has to be like the epic of all epics, right? Wow. Wow. I studied up in your background, and I see you got your BA in Middle East history from Berkeley, and then you went on and got an MA from UCLA in the philosophy of education. And then we find out, you know, at age 21, here you are, and you have this life-altering experience. When you were growing up, when you were going through school, did you envision yourself doing something different? Talk a little bit about that because I'm sure there's some listeners who maybe are on one path and then may realize sometimes destiny or life circumstances could put you on a completely different trajectory. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition of where well, you
3: Well, I, I was sort of an overweight, shy person through like junior high, middle school, they would call it now. I sort of came out of it in high school because... I think I was so miserable, I said, I have to change this. And I became president of my class by the 11th grade. But I really felt that, you know, I just sort of stumbled. I sort of did what I wanted to do. You know, I had a father who was very conservative, who, when I wanted to write, started telling me, why don't you write for local newspapers? He was so worried about the finances, you know, of career. And I said, you know, if I write for local newspapers, I'll write to that level. I need to write to try to publish with a mainstream publisher at the level that they would accept. And that's where I'm going to start. Uh, so I guess I was just determined to try to do something that was valuable as best I could. I gave up the, the idea of going into education. I got a novel published while I was in graduate school. And I just said, I'm going to do this now. And off I went.
2: Very neat. I always love hearing, you know, about people's life stories. And the interesting thing you referenced is that you had this thing inside of you that had to write for a different audience. And I think that's a real good takeaway for anyone who's listening today on any level.
3: Yes, I think it has a lot to do with what you aspire to. Mm -hmm. You know, if you aspire to a higher level, then you start working. And I also had this idea. I haven't thought about this in a really long time, but I just remembered now and I thought, There are more people struggling at the lower level and the competition may be worse or greater. And I thought, I'll just try to leap over them and see if I could have the audacity to do that. And I worked hard. You know, that's always you hear about the Beatles. You know, the one thing if you start reading about the Beatles is you find out how hard they worked. It didn't just come easily.
1: Howard, you've written four novels And I'm curious if there's a common theme or storyline or so forth that runs through all these novels.
3: Well, I somewhat. uh, I wrote the Damascus cover, and then I went back and wrote a book called The Chopin Express, which is more directly about my experiences in Russia. And I sort of got that out of my system. I think it's probably my weakest book, actually, in terms of... You know, it's a little too autobiographical and not imaginative enough. Then I wrote another novel called Bullets of Palestine, where I started a series, a few of the characters that I had in the Damascus cover, but then I created new characters. And then I've written two other books that are not yet published that are in that series. And they're all about an Israeli agent and a Palestinian agent who learn to trust each other and work together against common enemy. And that's really where I've spent my more recent time. Uh, So I'm working on the second and third book in that kind of trilogy, and Bullets of Palestine is out and available. Uh, So I like this idea. I've had, you know, maybe one of my favorite reviews was from a Palestinian journalist in Jerusalem who wrote about Bullets of Palestine, he said, after reading this, I got up and I started looking at Israelis in a different way, in a more humanistic way of who they were as people. So that's sort of what I'm trying to do.
1: Very cool, Howard. Very cool. I want to switch over to the film for a moment because you filmed part of this, if not all, at a very famous location, Casablanca in Morocco, which you talked about. And I'm very curious as to What was it like being there? And if you could tell us something, perhaps maybe a little story about being there on the film set.
3: Casablanca is really a huge city. And there is a Rick's Cafe. It's a very (laughs) sort of trendy, high-end restaurant now where they play the movie Casablanca in an alcove nonstop on a loop. Uh, Somebody took me there. One of the things, uh, Casablanca is like London. It's this enormous city, I think maybe 10 million people. I'm not sure I have that right. The real value of it from a film perspective is basically whatever locale you need that's Middle Eastern, whether it's a restaurant or a carpet factory or hand-woven carpet or a villa where the Nazis live uh, or you know a really interesting-looking restaurant, it's all right at hand in one city. And then they could go to the desert, which was not that far. They filmed the climax of the film out in the desert. I wasn't there when they filmed that. So it really, the, the enormity of the city, like we would shoot usually in two locales a day, and they would have to plan the locales to be geographically near each other because the city is so big. And I remember my last day there, they shot in a marketplace in the early evening, and then a restaurant late at night, uh, because after the restaurant closed and near the end, Jonathan Reese Myers bought the director, the producer, myself, and a couple other people dinner. It was really quite spectacular and fun to be there. He's a very talented actor, very passionate.
1: Very cool. Great stories. Thank you. This is the spotlight with Tony Dirso and Morris Sweeney as co-host. Just ahead, Howard shares more insights and his contact info. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know you must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other and all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, Long-term objective and master plan, including strategic and tactical planning. Get the vision map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDurso.com/ vision. V I S I O N. The Dream Business Community wants to help you with your career and business. Are you ready for accelerated success? Check it out. The Dream Business Community at tony D-U-R-S-O.com slash community. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other and all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at tonydurso.com vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, long-term objective, and master plan Including strategic and tactical planning. Get the vision map, beat the odds for business success at slash vision. V I S I O N.
0: You're listening to the Spotlight with Tony d'urso and a special VIP co host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to tony at tonydurso.com. Now, back to the
1: Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight with the ambassador of happiness, Morris Sweeney, as co-host. Today's show is with the Damascus cover author, Howard Kaplan. The film focuses on Middle Eastern espionage, intrigue, and a spy named Ari Sion. Of the Mossad who navigates the precarious terrain of love and survival while on an undercover mission in Syria. And now, back to the chat. Well, I, I, that's a huge transition
2: going from author writing a story that lives in your own life and inside your head to suddenly, in a sense, handing it over to a director and someone else who's turning it into something else. When you were there, I'm just curious to know, watching the filming, did you ever say to yourself, oh, I wish I could do it this way or oh, I wish I could tell them they need to say it this way or "Oh, that's not well, exactly how it he, happened?
3: He, did you? That's a perfect question, actually. To my surprise, you know, there were not to my, my reaction was my surprise. There are many scenes in the movie that are right out of the book. And there are many, many scenes of the Ruby that were written by the director. He also was the screenwriter. What I found was the scenes that were right out of the book were harder for me to watch because I kept saying, oh, I could have written that better. I should have done better there. The scenes that the director wrote that weren't in the book, I didn't care about. I thought, well, you know, that's, his scene, you know, it's not my responsibility that it's not better. So I think I was a little hard on myself and I'm surprised to find that. It was a little uneasy watching. For example, I'd made up an address that had been my aunt's address in a house in Tel Aviv. And I suddenly hear Jonathan Reese Myers spouting that exact address in his scene that I had, you know, that my aunt had lived in and nobody knew that except for me. And it was a little eerie. To, to hear that, a little surreal.
2: Oh, my. That's pretty, that's pretty neat, and I would think surreal, and that's where I was going because a lot of artists, when they create something, have a certain level of ownership, so it's almost like giving your baby to a brand-new parent, and they're changing their clothes or whatever, and you're like, give that back to me. <laughs> but very, very interesting, exciting, and I'm sure it was just loaded with all kinds of emotions, but uh, what that's quite surreal.
3: I think it's helpful to think of the film as the directors Mm. and to think of the book as mine. And even legally, that's the case. They buy motion picture and television rights and you retain the book rights. So nobody can touch the book and you hope people will do both, read the book and see the film, you know, and enjoy the differences. But this was really a case where I had a director who really had a deep passion for the project and he wanted to make the best film. And he did. So, where lots of people, writers, are disappointed in the way their their book is stripped down, in my case, I was pretty thrilled and hopeful. I just had faith in him all along. He just seemed like a smart guy who would do the something in a in an intelligent way, and he has. Oh, that's. I've very- seen the film, obviously.
2: Uh, very good news wow well do you know would you want to tell us a little bit about the opening your opening in Boston yes that's your premiere could you right. talk a little bit about what what to uh, anticipate
3: this is the world premiere of the film it's in the Boston Film Festival uh, I guess I can say this because it's been in the press a lot uh, Jonathan Reese Myers has a a drinking problem he has an alcohol problem and he just had a binge Last week from time we're talking and he was going to go from uh, Dublin to Vancouver and he was stopped at 10 in the morning and not allowed on the plane for inebriation. Now, he's had this problem before and he goes to rehab and he kicks it and then he seems to relapse both when he's not working. I think I can relate to that as a writer And he's afraid of flying. And one of his fans, who are really wonderful, they read the book and they tell everybody, wrote me and said he always gets in trouble in airports. He was drunk at 10 in the morning uh, because he's afraid of flying. He's terrified of flying. Well, he were expecting and hoping, although it is not confirmed yet, that he will actually come to Boston, be there for the screening on the 23rd. Uh, I spoke to the director today, and we're, as they say, he, if he can manage it, he's getting treatment, he will be there. They're trying to work out the details now. And I've met him on set, so I'm sort of looking forward to seeing him, and hopefully he will be able to come.
2: I hope so, too. I hope so, too. I'm sure he does, if he could just get on that flight, all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Howard, uh, back to the uh, Damascus itself. You talk about, you just mentioned earlier in this interview, that it's the oldest, In I believe it's the oldest inhabited city in the world. I'd yeah, like you to... Continuously
3: inhabited, right. Continuously
1: inhabited. I'd love it if you could take us back into history to what Damascus was like back then. You talked a little bit about it with its its culture and its being encircled by palm trees, I believe. But could you kind of paint that picture? What was it really like back then, please?
3: Well, you know, it's an old, it was a caravan stop, you know, on the way from the east to Lebanon and the ocean. And it has a really ancient covered marketplace, you know, a huge, they call it a sook, you know, uh, a huge where they sell both everyday wares, you know, like shoes and combs and, you know, clothing and tourist items. So it's an enormous place. It has a huge mosque, one of the largest mosques in Islam. It's called the Umayyad Mosque. There was a famous incident. Henry Kissinger was there at one time. and There was worry about him being assassinated there. So it's a very large city. It's built below a mountain. And as you might imagine, the rich people live on the mountain because it's cooler. And the radio station, you see it's like one antenna, the television station, you know, was up from that top of that mountain. And it just was a very exotic and less known place than, you know, Casablanca, you know, had been maybe because of Humphrey Bogart and just a place where people hadn't been as up as much, at least Westerners. So I was excited to be there and excited to do a lot of research and excited to, you know, include these, you know, the marketplaces and the streets and the, Uh, mosques, and there was a Jewish quarter of Damascus, which also plays a role in the film and in the novel. The Jews who were imprisoned in that sort of part of the city.
1: Oh, I see. I see. Now, you've been throughout the Middle East, and you've been in Syria, Damascus, Jerusalem, and... You've seen both sides of this Middle East conflict, which we've talked about a couple of times. I'd like to know your view on this. You've, you've mentioned a little bit about it, but I'd like to open this up a little bit more because I believe you have this sensitivity to it that even one of your readers said that she now looks at, at things in a different perspective. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and your views? Well, I think it
3: comes from me. From the fact that my parents were holocaust survivors and my mother had been in Auschwitz in a concentration camp and she was she's no longer alive but she was a deeply affected and damaged person from that experience so often children of this environment become very right-wing they come they become like the way the the russian emigres come out they, they become often very right wing because they've experienced communism and they want to go in the opposite direction. I took a different approach and I can't tell you how I got there. I just did, which was if my mother was treated as a subhuman and my father lost hes Polish, he lost his whole family. He came out before the war and they were treated as subhumans, then I don't want to say I know better because of how awful the world is, and I'm going to abuse other people. I want to feel the opposite. I want to feel nobody should be treated as the other. Nobody should be treated as an undermentionism, as the Germans would call it, you know, a less than human. So I graduate back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to say that the Israelis are in control of the, of the country at this point, as they should be, I suppose is a way to say it, but that doesn't mean you treat the indigenous Palestinians as less as anything the other, because you were treated in Nazi Europe as less. So somehow I was able to transmit that kind of background into empathy rather than anger. I can't tell you how, it just... You know, it's like baking a cake. It all came together inside me, and that's how it came out.
1: Very, very interesting. Well, I want to thank you for sharing all these stories and insights and points of view on the conflict and how things were back then. And it's just very, very enlightening. And I look forward to the spotlight audience checking out your your movie when it comes out. And Maura, do you have any closing comment? And perhaps you could ask for his contact information. That's exactly where I was going,
2: Tony, now that we're closing. Um, If you would, just give us maybe a website so people could get familiar with your work and also whatever important information people need to get out and see your movie. It's your turn for your commercial.
3: Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, thanks. My website is www.howardkaplan.com. Ah, uh, the book's available in the new modern world as an ebook on all the you know various ebook platforms and as a paperback. And we hope to have the film in general release in March. I think what they want to do is release it after the Oscar onslaught, you know, find a kind of happy home for it in between the Oscars and the huge, you know hundred million dollar summer films. So we're excited the director is very excited particularly to to show it in Boston because it'll be the first time it'll see be seen with a r- audience of regular moviegoers. So we'll get a chance of, to see how people, uh, respond to it. And I've already had a little heads up on how the festival people responded to it. So, uh, but I'm not allowed to reveal that they have, you know, they've already voted for best picture, best actor, best actress, best screenplay, whatever it is. So let's say we did well at the Boston film festival. That's all I can say right now.
2: Very good. Very good. And exciting.
1: Well, all right. Well, thank you again. Thank you everyone. And it is such an amazing interview with the Damascus cover, Howard Kaplan. I just love it. And again, appreciate you taking the time from writing your books to spend this time with us on The Spotlight.
3: Thank you so much for having me around.
1: Absolutely, great, great, great. And Maura, I wanna thank you for being such a great co-host. We look forward to your vibrant life energy of happiness (laughs) on yet another episode of The Spotlight. Oh,
2: I'm just gonna say I loved being here. It was a great interview. I'm so happy to get up front and close with Howard Kaplan and his story. So thanks for having me join you.
1: Absolutely cool. And to our Spotlight audience, thanks again. It's our honor to have you listen. All right. Keep your focus on success, and we'll see you next on The Spotlight.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and his special VIP co-host. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, enjoy the weekend.